Uh, hello and welcome to another episode of Grange TV. I'm here with uh, the one and only Mr. Robert Whittaker, champion of the known universe, <laughs> David Roberts, TAFE extraordinaire, and a special guest today, Rob's manager and life coach, Mr. Titus Day from Six Degrees Management. Life coach. Welcome. <laughs> welcome, for Titus. Um, Very good. How you doing? Good, good, good. Titus, uh, how long you been managing Rob? Uh, have to be coming up to a year. Yeah, about a year, maybe a bit longer. Yeah, bit just longer. about a month. I think about a month before the Jacare fight, mm. we started. I'm not sure exactly when that was, but probably yeah, a bit yeah. longer than a year ago. About yeah, just over a year. Um, what can you tell us a little bit about your background and that? How, how do you end up being a manager for fighters and whatnot? Yeah. And uh, well, long story. I mean, I've, I've um, we've got time. <laughs> <laughs> we've got heaps of time. Yeah. We love the long ones. Yeah. Uh, well, I've I've been a um, MMA fan for a long, long time. Um, you know, since the sort of mid to late '90s, back in the Gracie days, and um, before you know when it was still on VHS, you had to share it around with your mates. But um, I've been a manager in the music industry and the entertainment and sports industry for. Um, 26 years. I started when I was still at school. Managing my brother's band was the first thing I ever did. Um, and uh, actually the first time I ever wanted to be a manager was in 1988 when I uh, was at an ACDC concert. I saw a guy standing on the side of the stage and everyone was like, oh, I want to be Angus Young. And I was thinking, I want to be that dude who <laughs> gets to stand on the side of the stage and like, tell everyone what to do. So um, that's when the first kind of thing How was How old were you? In 1988, you would have been I would eight. That's no, no, 16, I think. Yeah. 15 or 16. Like all young people, everyone's yeah. watching the bands and the singers, the lead singers, or the groupies, and just yeah. staring at that guy way in the corner, counting like, the money. Yeah, look I at that guy. Him. What? So, what? What back? What's your father's background? Uh, so, my parents are both. Um, I guess historically, uh, we're Irish, English, you know, Scottish. I think there's a bit of um, Spanish in our blood somewhere. Uh, but my parents, my family's been in Australia for generations. Um, and and your dad was was he a, a solicitor, a lawyer, or what was no? He? My um, my dad was an architect. My parent, uh, my mother, and my stepfather. My stepfather was a judge. My mother was a um, barrister, family law barrister. So uh, I only did I did law um, when I left school, but only because I didn't know what else to do. And my parents were like, well, I was like, I want to be a music manager. Um, and they were like, you're an idiot. That's not a job. Get a job. So I said, well, I want to do it. So they said, um, do a law degree. So I did a law degree. And then... Uh, but the big pedigree then, your stepfather being a judge and your, your... Yeah. So he was a criminal judge. My mum was a, um, a barrister, which is like a litigator uh, in the family, you know, family law. So um, I just kind of got pushed in that direction, but never really liked it. I never went to a lecture. Just uh, used to get the books, go into the first day, get the books and then go home and study at home. Um, but I, I liked a couple of things. Like I liked criminal law. I liked um, intellectual property, which is what I kind of specialised in in contract law. And then, uh, you know, as I was doing it, I just thought, well, this is going to be pretty actually useful for everything that I want to do in my career as a manager. So, um, I'm, yeah. trying to, I'm trying to picture the conversation you had with your mum. <laughs> judging <laughs> mum uh, and said, "Ma, I want to, I want to be a music manager." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I was already doing it and spending a lot of money and going out every night, you know, um, with my managing my brother's band. So she was like, "Your brother's a loser because he's a muser. You're even bigger loser because you're a manager." <laughs> <laughs> if, if your parents have that idea of the of your brother being a muser, yeah, and then like you're not even a muser. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
So I mean, I started working. Um, I was managing. How old were you? So you were sixteen or so when you were managing him. Well, I've been 17, 18 as I like in the final years of school, and then I left. And the first job I got was in a um, as like a poster boy for a promotions company that put on musical gigs. Um, and I stayed there for a couple of years, and I became an agent, which is a booking agent, which is basically booking concerts and tours for acts. And I did that while I was studying law part time. Um, did was doing it at night basically, and uh, managing bands as I went. So, so you did your time. You did. You worked your way up from literally the ground up. I literally spent every day <laughs> <laughs> putting blue tack on walls in venues. Like that was my job for two years. So, well, yeah, yeah, that's. It's, it's and, and you also have an interesting background, eh? So, what you you were you were born? Were you born in Australia? No, you were born overseas. Yes, I was born in Lagos in, in Nigeria. Yeah, um, you look Nigerian. Yeah, <laughs> a, lot, a, lot, a, lot, a lot of girls say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, my parents were um, they were actually travelling from. Australia to London and uh, my dad I think a couple of days before he was going to go got a call to go to Nigeria to help them design this um, hospital or something so went over there ended up staying two years I was um, born there and then uh, a couple of years two years later again he was going to go to England um, got a call a few days before went to Brunei which is in um, kind of the northwest coast of Borneo uh, to go and do another hospital there, and he ended up staying there 22 years. Never actually made it to to uh, London. So, um, yeah, I lived in Nigeria until I was about two and a half, and then moved to uh, Brunei from you know two and a half until about eight when I was uh, yeah went to boarding school. My my parents stayed in Brunei. So when you were a little boy, so uh, say five years old. Yeah. Who 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 um. Who, who were you with there? Did, we, did you go to boarding school at that, that young? I went to boarding school at eight. And from so, five to eight, what did you do? So five to eight, I lived in Brunei. So two and a half, we went to um, Brunei. And then from two and a half till eight, I lived in Brunei. And then at eight, uh, basically the school, in Brunei, like in, in a lot of those kind of um, you know, Southeast Asian countries, the quality of the schooling kind of you know, reaches its potential at about that age. So any expats, basically they either send their kids to England or to Australia, so. But you went to Scotland? So I went, yeah, north of Scotland. The place called um, Elgin, which is a small town in between Inverness and Aberdeen, which is on the Scottish Bight, which is that. Sunny, beautiful, tropical, yeah. <laughs> North Scotland. Yeah. So <laughs> I grew up in basically in the jungles of Brunei, right? We lived in literally in the jungle, the house with the snakes and um, honey bears and, you know, Mongrel, do, mongrel dogs everywhere. What's a honey bear? Honey bear's a little cute bear about this big that uh, has massive claws that lives in the jungles of Brunei. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Pretty vicious. All right. <laughs> they attack you? Oh, they would, yeah, yeah. Well, if you, if you, went, yeah, if you went close, I mean, they would, like, they, they would rip your guts out. Yeah, yeah there's quite a few. Yeah. <laughs> And, and, and then orangutans, and yeah, you ended up in the in in the north of Scotland when you're yeah. eight years old. What's yeah. what's what's boarding school like for an eight year old? Pretty tough when you've well, yeah, pretty tough. Like it depends on the schools, but I went to a particularly tough school. So the, when I first went over there, I was eight years old. I went to a school called Ablauer House, which is um, the prep school to a senior school called Gordonston. And this this is like the GPS system we have in Australia, like the yeah. like like a King's School, Joey's yeah. that kind of school. Yeah. So so Gordonston is is like right at the top of the chain when it comes to um, schools in the UK. So Prince Charles went there. Uh, a lot of Arabian royalty goes there. Um, you know, 
wealth, wealthy families. And that's where you went? Wormston. Yeah, so I went, I went to Abelard House first, which is the prep school, preparatory school, um, which feeds in. So um, from eight to uh, 12 or 13, around there, I was in the junior school and then stepped up to the senior school for two years before I came back. But um, yeah, I mean, it's pretty, th those kind of schools are pretty confronting. Like old fashioned British boarding schools are pretty brutal. But uh, particularly going from, like I was a pretty, I had three brothers, pretty tight family, running around in the tropics, you know, swimming in rivers, waterfalls, you know, playing with mongrel dogs. And then all of a sudden, I'm in the north of Scotland. Like, like I was like, what the? No, what's this white stuff coming out of the sky? Like, yeah, you know. Has, has anyone read The Power of One? Yeah, I have seen the movie. That's this guy's story. <laughs> Hey, you know the, have you read it? Remember we were no, talking yeah, about yeah, it before? That's his, that, that, you'll read it and you'll be like, somebody ripped off my life. <laughs> um, and uh, so then you were, you were there and eight to 12, so what, what happens? Like what, what's particularly difficult about those sort of, because for me, yeah. I'll be honest with you, I was just raised like my mum yeah. and dad and like, yeah. I, I would be scared. Yeah. Well, you got, we picture like a, um, both schools are pretty much castles. So picture a like, castle in the, the hills of Scotland um, where there's, like, I think there's only 200 kids or something, even less kids in, at the prep school. Um, each, each one, there's dormitories uh, and it's strict. Like every morning, no matter what the weather, you get up at six o'clock, you strip down to your, your um, underwear and you meet down in the front hall and then you go for a run in the morning with no shirt in like middle of winter. Then you come back around, you funnel, the girls go one way, the guys go another way. <coughs> you come into a locker room and you go through a cold shower. So they think that it, um, the theory with that is that if you have a cold, really cold shower at the beginning of the day, you close your pores in your skin and then keeps you warm for the rest of the day. So you go through the shower and I'm talking like, this is like prison, you know, shower that just- Prison it's a, yeah. <laughs> You know, it's, it's like this thick, water just gushes out. So you stand under there, the teacher turns it on and off as you go under, stand there for 10 seconds, then you go out and get dressed and, um, you know. Sounds back, like a barrel of laughs, the place. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you sit, then you go back to your bed and you have to like, your bed gets inspected every morning. Almost, it's a bit prison-ish. I mean, it's an amazing school, it's outward bound and it's, you know, you do expeditions and all sorts of amazing stuff. But there's, um, yeah, you go back and the teacher comes to every single bed and inspects it, like picks up the pillows, looks at the creases, and then you're allowed to go down to breakfast. Corporal punishment? Yeah, oh yeah, caning, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I got caned a few times. For what? Um, well, one, one time me and my mate got caned because we, uh, we got up in the middle of the night and uh, we went down to the kitchens and we went into the cold storage room where they keep all the ice creams and stuff like that. And we had, a, we had like a food fight um, and then we stole all these, uh, <laughs> like frozen yogurt sort of things. So we stole a bunch of those and we took them up to the girls' dormitories. We broke into the girls' dormitories and we handed them out to all the girls, um, went and saw our girlfriends, you know, nothing too weird because we, we were very young, and then went back to our, um, you know, dormitories and went to sleep. Woke up the next morning with the headmaster, like, tapping us. So someone had gone around and seen all the food throughout the girls' dormitories and then one of the girls had said, yeah, that was Titus and Robert. They ready. They ready you <laughs> yeah, out. What a my brother's girlfriend ratted me out. What a scumbag. They ratted you out. My brother's girlfriend ratted me out. You gave him ice cream. Did she eat the ice cream? Yeah, frozen yogurt. She, she ate the ice cream. She ate the ice cream. Then, 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 then,
Yeah, so we got called down, got six of the best. Best school in the world won't fix that, mate. Nah. Yeah. It was <laughs> Once it. a rat, you're always a rat. Um, yeah. What, what, so, was it, I'm just imagining then you have like 200 young kids <coughs> from, yeah. what did you say, like 8 to 11 years old? Yeah. Okay, when you're 8 to 11. 8 to 12, yeah. 8 to 12, then there's even bigger difference. Was a lot of bullying? Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the, um, the junior school, yes, but not compared to the senior school. Like the senior school is very different. The junior school, because there's only like 100 people, everyone knows each other. Um, there's the little kids get looked after a bit more because you know, eight years old, living, I don't know how many thousand miles, but probably 20,000, 30,000 kilometers from home, um, you are fragile. So they look after you a little bit more. Um, but there's a, in that school in particular, in most English private schools, there's a, like, a, um, like a hierarchy. So no matter who you are or how tough you are, if someone above you and the year above you tells you what to do, you do it. If he punches you in the face, you take it. And if you, you know, no matter how tough you are, if, if you would hit him back, the rest of the year, including your family and your friends, would beat the shit out of you, like solidly, until you, you know, learn your lesson. So in the junior school, Quite like quite bad, but but in the senior school it's very very different. Like there's worse in the senior much school? much worse, yeah. Because in the junior school we're all in one building. You're really selling this to me. This <laughs> yeah. in the senior school. Thinking about visiting. <laughs> so I mean I've never really talked about this like you know at all. Even if my brother was there as well. Um, but uh, yeah, the senior school bowling was serious, really serious. Like you, there was five or six different houses. I think it was four boys' houses, um, three girls' houses, and we I was in a house called the Brown Square which is the toughest house, the most like renowned globally for bullying that house. And um, yeah, every night you got, you just get flogged. For those people that don't understand Australian slang, flogged means? Bashed, yeah, yeah. So they like, uh, what used to happen to us is that the lights go out in the dormitories. In your dormitory, it's the same thing. You've got eight to 10 kids. Um, there's a dormitory leader. And then the seniors, the last two years, they all have their own um, studies. So they sleep and work in their studies in the, in the house. Um, our house is like, it's, there's quite a uh, good story to our, I won't go into it now, but to our school. This, the house Say whatever you in, want, Titus. Well, the house I lived in was called the Round Square because it was, it was an old stable um, originally with, you know, to the big house, which is called Gordonston. And uh, the guy who lived there was a guy called Robert Gordon. He was, he was found dead on the road, but he had this obsession that he was being chased by the devil. So he built a stable yard, which well, he changed his stable yard um, from being square to being round. So there was no corners, there was no shadows, everything, the whole thing was round, it was like a donut. And each, each dormitory was like curved and everything. So it was kind of, it was a, it was a weird house to begin with. Um, but then the seniors, every night, there was like three seniors, you know, that I can remember. And they would go from dormitory to dormitory and they would just beat the shit out of the kids that they didn't like. When you say beat the shit though, are we talking about like roughing the kids up or like beating them up? Well, I think, well, they used, the two things they used to do to me is they used to get, um, like, fill a laundry bag. Do you know, like a... <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing at Because <laughs> you know you're sick, though. You know. You, He's like, this is what I'm going to do to him. We've discussed this. <laughs> no, like, the way you react to shit is not the way nobody else reacts. <laughs> I'm just picturing the lights go off and you're fighting me alive. <laughs> 
See, see, Titus, this is what you deal with with this person. You know, I had a completely different image when he told me castles and stuff. I went straight to Harry Potter. It was a bit similar. Yeah, so I had this vision of like that, and then you're talking about round circles with... Oh, I'm, I'm with Rob. I'm like, whoa. Well, what they feel that as soon as you said they they had a pillowcase, I was like, someone someone is getting Fight done with a pillowcase filled with oranges. <laughs> what, 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 what would get put yeah. in the pillowcases? Like rugby boots. Oh, with the studs, and they're yeah. like old school. They would have had like the metal studs. Yeah, the big sprigs. Like yeah, this this wasn't yeah. this wouldn't be like those little rubber molded studs. Yeah, this would have been like the metal. Yeah, yeah. Fuck off, turf like yeah. studs. Yeah, so this, this, this is what they used to do to me. They used to do every different things to different people, but they used to put, fill it with like 20 boots, rugby boots, and then they just beat the shit out of you on the bed. <laughs> just beat the crap out of you with that. Or they'd use a badminton racket and they just pull you, come in the dark, rip your blanket off, and they just beat you. With a badminton racket? Yeah, with, no, bad, with no, badminton rackets. No, yeah. With, like, they had the, had the racket, would they use the corners or would they use the flats? They use the, they use the side. So they, they the thin bit, yeah. So, so it wasn't, but but in all in all fairness, it's not even like um, it's not even funny. Like that's a proper, like, oh yeah, yeah. Like that's not like bullying, like bullying as people. No, it's not twisting an ear or like yeah, dead legging someone. Would and they, and in yeah. and in fairness, like the kids there, like when you think about kids that are put in like foster care system and that shit, like the kids there at that age, at that formative age, you'd have no one to turn to. And that well, you can't. Yeah, the families kilometers away. No, but well, not you just tell anyone. Just given. Yeah. Well, there's a higher like that hierarchy. Um, there's also a thing called like called it. Um, it's funny. There's different names. What you would call here, you know, a junior or whatever. Over there, it was called fags. So a fag was a guy. Every senior had their own fag. So a fag was a junior that did their stuff. So you go clean my room. You know, polish my shoes. Go get me breakfast. Do whatever. Um, and like. Tell, telltaling was what we would call dobbing. So you would, you cannot dob. So you get beaten up, you could have a black eye, you could have a tooth punched out. So one guy got his nipples ripped off. You cannot dob. So if no matter what happens, you don't tell your parents, you don't tell the teacher. Teacher goes, why does your nipple get ripped off? Just what happened. do you do if your nipple gets ripped dog off? Dog bit me. Like, you know, so you'd, you'd get the shit beaten out of you, you'd be crying and you know, and the teacher would come over and say, what happened to you? And you're like, oh, nothing. Just fell down the stairs. So these principals, so like you said, the princes and stuff, they would have to abide by the same rule. Oh, so yeah. Yeah. so someone is literally hammering Prince Harry or someone. Well, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but I mean, the someone, people that, that would yeah. hammer Prince Harry would also be other people like Prince whoever, you know what I mean, that are older. Yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know what would happen at that level. Um, I wasn't there with those guys, so I don't know what they did, but they were, Prince Charles there way before me. It was probably rougher before I was there. Um, but I don't know. Have you read uh, Roald, Roald Dahl's book, uh, Boy? Yeah. Is it like that? Yeah. 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 Have you read it there? There's a book, if you want, the, the closest thing is... Um, <laughs> didn't, even, didn't even ask me. <laughs> didn't even ask me. Boy. <laughs> that was a hard day. you have. Ask me that. Have you read it? No. <laughs> the, cl- the closest kind of thing is Dead Poet Society. Yeah, yeah I saw oh, that yeah. the other day. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen that one. Yeah. I have. All right. I have. It's <laughs> I have. Of course you have, yeah. I have. Yeah. What's your favourite part in it? Oh, when Tom when they slay the dragon. The <laughs> <laughs> when they kill the dragon. No, it was, it was good. Yeah, it was a good movie. Deep movie. Touching, very touching. And and so so what what so so when you're talking about people like um getting their nipples ripped off and shit like when they're kids, so was there a high incidence of suicide and stuff yeah, like that? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean um not at the school, but some weird stuff happened afterwards. 
you know, I think a lot of some kids handle it and some don't. I mean, my in my first week when I got there, my brother was two years above me. He wasn't particularly liked. Um, so I'm 12 years old. There's an 18 year old with this group of 18 year olds who are the kind of the like the house bullies. They took me to this their study, three of them, and they sat me down um, and they pulled out of their drawer a bullet, and my name is on it, literally engraved on a bullet. And they were like, "If you ever dob on us, ever." This is your bullet. We're gonna kill you. And I was like, I mean, they were obviously lying, but yeah. But you're 12 years old. You yeah. don't. You can't decide yeah. for that. Yeah. So some people take that well. Some people don't. You know, we had a few, we had a couple of weird things, and my guy went left and tried to come back and kill a bunch of people. He got caught, luckily, on the way. Um, another guy. Uh, it was in quite a famous case. He was in my year. Actually, quite a good friend of mine. Um, who uh, two years after school, he was in a really famous case in England. He. he um, just killed the taxi driver. He wanted to commit the perfect crime, him and his mate, and they basically just got in a car and just slid the taxi driver's throat, got out. That was it. No court, nothing, no reason, no, no, just a random guy. Um, and they, yeah, then they started talking about it and joking, so they got caught. But like, just meant, yeah, some people would just go well, some don't. And you think about those situations, though, when you, like, I think we were talking with, you know, about with Tim yep. in, in the last podcast. And um, we had a guy here for the last podcast. He works like with like violent offenders, violent sex offenders, like doing PhD from Monash. And um, you start to think about like those sort of things like that, and you're like, that's that's insane, like that sort of sort of like violent abuse towards kids and in, in those formative years. And you think like exactly like what you said, how how it affects different people and, and whatnot. And then you talk about like the suicide that that has occurred, and that's that you know of possibly. You know what I mean? Like you're now doing what you're doing. Yeah, who knows what other people are doing? Yeah, crazy. Yeah. So you finished there, and then where'd you go from there? So um, that was in about that was in '88 when I came to Australia. So we basically we came on a holiday to Sydney because um, my grandparents lived here, and we didn't. I didn't never been to Australia, so. Um, we came back and and uh, my parents, my grandparents lived in Manly. And we we turned up and we were like, we're Australian, but we can live here, and we we're fucking living in what? <laughs> Excuse my French. We're like we're in the north of Scotland. It's insane. Like it's sunny there two days a year, maybe. Is it picturesque though? I'd imagine it'd be picturesque. It's it's um, yeah. <laughs> it's beautiful when it's sunny, but it's but it's not sunny. Like it. it it's pretty much grey. Like it, the people wear grey, the houses are grey, like the moors are grey, which is the, you know, the foliage. There's not a lot of trees in the north of Scotland. Um, the people are grey. They wear grey clothing. It's and it's all the the, the sky is grey. So everything is grey. But when the sun comes out, it's spectacular, because you know. But it never does. But when when the sun came out in when I was at Abelow House, we had a day off school. That's shit. We really? literally would say no classes today. Everyone go out and play. And that would happen about three times a year. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it just so, sounds like a great place. Yeah, yeah so you, you, you know, it's, a, it's an amazing place. I love the Scottish people. Like, I go there. Yeah. Like, it's amazing. I'm seriously thinking about sending my sons there. <laughs> Do it. You sold it to them. me. Yeah. I think I'm going to shoot them off. Yeah. But, I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing school. I'm glad I went there, you know, um, so, as much as I'm saying bad stuff about it. <laughs> so, so then you came here, you were in Manly? Yeah, so then we came back on a holiday and we are like, what? And then uh, my parents were like, well, we can live here if you want. So we were like, uh, yeah. <laughs> Sold. Yeah, so we, we uh, yeah, they got us into schools. 
and we moved back. Where'd you go? Yeah. Uh, well, first one I came back, I went to Scots College. Did you board there? No, no. So we lived in Wollara, um, which is just down the road. Uh, went to there for two years. My Two of my brothers went, um, me and my older brother went to Scots. My two younger brothers went to Grammar, and then I followed. To Sydney Grammar? Yeah. So I went to two years those schools? Two years in. What was that like? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was, yeah, it was good. I mean, gra- Grammar was, they're both very different schools. They're both GPS yeah. you know, private schools in Sydney, um, but Scots is a very sporty, you know, it's a boarding school primarily. Um, a lot of country guys who I got along with really, I, I, got, I, did, I did well because I love sport and I love those kind of people. Um, grammar is like highly, highly academic and uh, yeah, not a lot of evidence on sport. Back then it was okay, but now it's, it's pretty much just, you know, HSC marks. What was, um, you, you, you were you were a very good swimmer, eh? Yeah, so, uh, I swam, uh, yeah, for the last, because I, I grew up in Brunei, we, we just lived in the rivers, you know, and swim at the beach every single day, so we were pretty good. Me and all my brothers were pretty athletic, because I think if you, if you live an active life when you're really young, I think it, it just, it stays in your system, you get muscle memory and you stay fit, and uh, we swam a lot there and then did a lot of swimming training um, while I was in Brunei, a little bit in Scotland, but not a lot. Uh, and then came back and swam, yeah, swam at school. Played, I did swimming was um, you know one of my top three sports with uh, rowing and rugby. But, yeah. But you played you you swam a particular time, mate. Eh, when like it was how old were you when you you said you swam in Olympic qualifying time? Um, in year ten, so whatever. In that, year that 10, was in my second year. Yeah. In year ten, you so you were sixteen. Yeah. You swam in Olympic qualifying time. Yeah. The Olympic qualifying time at, at the time, I think now it's like two or three seconds less. But back then, which was in um, 1989, yeah. So you swam an Olympic qualifying time yeah. while you were in your tent. Yeah. And for, the, for the 50 meters. 50 meters what? Freestyle. 50 meters freestyle. You swam an Olympic qualifying time while while you were in your tent. Yeah. In a school comp. And 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 what kind of person keeps you out of the Olympics? And what like what like who? Were you, is that something you yeah. wanted to do, or you just like swim Olympic no, qualifying times for fun? Like, well, I played rugby was my main sport in in winter, and then rowing was my main sport in summer. We just you just swam carnivals when they came up, so we didn't train. There was like the guys who wanted to be Olympians um, and wanted to you know have a career in swimming. They trained; that was their main sport. The rest of us just kind of we turned up to the carnivals, and that was it. Have you seen Robson? Well, I've heard I've heard about it. It's pretty. It's, it's pretty good. Pretty great. It's a pretty, pretty good swimmer. I heard he swims upright. Yeah. <laughs> I, I tried to run in the water. <laughs> I tried to run. Yeah, me and water don't get along very well. What, one of the things that, um, that, that I found very interesting was when, um, at the time, Andrew Canatley was managing Rob, and um, we were looking for, for managers. And this may surprise you, Titus, but a lot of the managers in the fight game are sharks. Right. <laughs> this may, I don't want to shock you. And um, then Andrew came through Andrew's recommendation, and obviously Andrew's like a pretty thorough person. And he he, he said, "Oh, we found a guy," and he mentioned you, and then we met you, and then um, yeah, like we, you know, obviously um, it's been good thus far. But I don't know. Do you want to speak on your relationship with uh, Titus a little bit, with management and whatnot? Yeah. So my my history with with management has has been ups and downs. <laughs> I um. It's I've had I've had good managers and then I've had managers that have wanted the best for me but just didn't know how to do things you know lack the skill sets necessary to to, to try and and you know let alone it's hard the the 
when I first started in the MMA game, like MMA wasn't what it was today, especially not in Australia. Australian mixed martial arts, I'm sure you've seen, has just been steadily going <coughs> up. And um, now it's it's much more exposed <coughs> and whatnot, but back then it was hard. So uh, that on top of, you know, managers not having the right skill sets and just not knowing how to, and me not being sellable enough, I guess, at the time was, uh, you know, we, we had some hardships. It's been a very rocky start. And uh, sometimes I've just had just shockers, <laughs> just shockers, you know. But uh, yeah, we got in touch with the Six Degrees and we started we, we started slow. Obviously, there's a, there's, a, there's a period of just trying to gain each other's trust and feeling each other out and, and just, um, I guess, like the same thing as with your coaches, just trying to find that, that medium of how, how everyone reacts to different things, how to, how to talk and just developing that relationship. But, but nowadays, like, we're good. Like, I think we're going really well. I think we're onto something. What's a management like? What's what's a management game like? Like, you say, fight the fight world versus um, entertainment business and whatnot. Yeah. And other sports that you've done. Uh, <coughs> well, I think the there's big differences between because um, our company is is quite diverse in that we you know we look after TV presenters, you know, celebrities like Sophie Monk straight up TV presenters like Grant Denyer, um, you know, surfers, UFC fighters, musicians, and so everyone's a bit different, but you know, athletes are kind of in one box in the way that they need to be managed. Uh, TV presenters are a bit different and artists are even more different. Um, artists are, are the most difficult because they require like literally dozens and dozens of calls per day to make, a, to make keep their career going whereas TV presenters don't you know you, they, you do a deal with the network you do some sponsors endorsement deals you do some logistics that other people in the office can do that's pretty much it um, and athletes are a bit different again um, not too much different from TV presenters for example but they are different in that there's they come with the team for a start uh, you know, train, coaches and trainers um, depending on the level that they're at and I've, I've managed you know Stephanie Rice Olympians um, John Stephenson back at I worked at IMG for a couple of years uh, in the legal department, but I've worked with a lot of athletes, and I'm I play I played a lot of sport, ne nothing even close to obviously what um, Rob is at, but um, I played a bit of first grade stuff, and I know all my friends are athletes. I kind of know how they think, um, and I know that athletes you, that, that there's, that they have priorities. You know, the the main priorities they got to win, um, and they need to be, have a certain mindset. They need to train. Um, they can't, you can't interrupt that. The moment you start taking away from that and pulling them in different directions is the moment when they either start to you know, falter or they crack the shit. So, uh, and particularly when there's things like, you know, for Olympians, Olympic games coming up, you, just, you have to just take complete back, back seat to everything. You try to do your work in the background, you know, um, negotiating and doing deals, but athletes, you know, as, as you're coming up to a UFC fight, for example, or you're coming up to, uh, in Olympic Games, um, you can't talk to athletes in the same way as you would normally. You know, they get they're they're in a mindset. They're trying to build to a certain thing um, and, and a certain crescendo, and you just can't mess with that. So, you have to be uh, a little bit careful in in um, that capacity. And you know, fighters as well. You know, we look after I think five fighters now. Uh, they're they're a different mindset again. I mean, you're doing when you step into a ring, 
particularly an octagon, it's a very dangerous sport. Yeah, you have to train. You, you know, you're constantly getting bashed, bashing, and you're in a in a uh, very very dangerous scenario when you get there. So, I think fighters have a slightly different mindset to other athletes as well. So, just about getting to know them. You know, the the, the essence of what you do in management is the same. You know, you're trying to uh, you know, structure a long-term career so the athlete can you know, be financially successful. You're also uh, you know, making sure that they're comfortable, trying to maximize the income earning opportunities that come their way uh, you know, and deal with their team. And you know, my job really is to make sure that during Rob's career, he makes the most money he possibly can um, and is set up and he misses no opportunities at the same time as ensuring that you know, he uh, you know, has a good successful fight career but when he's in the ring or when he's training with you guys it's got nothing to do with me so um, yeah that's that's kind of the role and just making sure you're doing it with, within what they want the realms of what they want you to do. Anything at all? Hmm? Do you want to say anything? Or anything? No like <coughs> I've noticed that you work really well Like uh, coming into fights, like when I'm like eight weeks out, six weeks out, to four weeks out, you, yeah, you really work on that. Things are getting tighter, and then, and my 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 space for movement isn't much anymore. You know, there's not a lot of wiggle room anymore. I can't can't miss anything, and I can't go out of my way to do a lot of things because the time that I'm not training, I need to be spent doing what I'm doing, and it's hard. And I know there's that fine line of like. I need you to do this, otherwise you're going to miss out on this. And that, that other bit where it's like, you know, if you do this, you might, you're taking away from, from yeah. the fight game. So, yeah. but you know, it is, it is, a, it is a balance and it, it's hard. Yeah. I don't envy you. But yeah, the, and the irony is that, it, that as you, the, the closer that you get, and, and Rob's a, a unique example, in, you know, again, um, because he's a world champ you know, and the whole world wants him. And he, when he's getting closer to that day of the big fight, not only does his time become less and less, but the demands become more and more. So the UFC, you know, for example, want him to do more and more media and the build, build up to it. All of his sponsors, that's when they want him. You know, in the two weeks before the fight, that's when they want him. That's when this training team needs him the most. Um, and that's when he also has to be the most focused. So all of that stuff is just, you know, it's compounding. Everything is compounding at the same time. So and trying to make sure that you're not pissing the UFC off, you know, or, or the sponsors off who are paying the money, but also that we have, you have to, can't take your mind off the fact that at the end of the day, only one thing matters, and that, that you know, Rob's hand is held up at the end of the fight. What's that like, say for example, with Rob in particular and your role, what, what's that like? Like what's the, if you could, what happens in the lead up to a fight from your end? What happens? How do you negotiate the contracts? How do you negotiate? Like, what kind of negotiations occur? Because I think a lot of people, not a lot of people, 99.999% of people, even I think other coaches or, or even fighters themselves, they don't really fully get it. I'm in a funny position because I sort of talk to you and I talk to Rob and I talk to the other coaches. So sometimes I talk to you and you're saying to me like, and I know that whatever the nature is and like you're having some, for one of a better term, heated negotiations or heated um, conversations with the UFC. And the UFC, you know, sometimes you talk to people and people go, well, why don't you just tell this to the UFC? And I think like, UFC is like a massive company. Like you're not, it's not that simple, you know, it's not. So 
what, what, so what happens is lead up to a fight, negotiating contracts, negotiating, balancing uh, sponsors, and just keeping your own head together with some of the conversations. Because I imagine that some people, not just necessarily with the UFC, are not polite, for want of a better term, you know? Yeah. Um, can you explain the background that's involved, in particular yeah. with Rob? Yeah, so um, yeah, the, the UFC is a massive, massive organization, as we know. You know, they've grown over the last 25 years, and uh, they sold, I think, what was it, last year, to IMG WMA for yeah. 4.2 billion. Um, so not only is the UFC um, grown and grown, but they now are owned by a huge multinational, multi-billion dollar company um, that has multi-levels of boards and people that they need to answer to. Uh, they also have, I think, five, six hundred fighters that are contracted directly to them. They put on something like um, an event every week, maybe two weeks, I don't know, but there's, they put on massive events. There's 10 you know, numbered UFC fights a year, which are the pay-per-view, then there's Fight Pass, there's all sorts of other things. They've got TV shows. They're a, they're a colossal organization, and uh, they have a limited amount of champions. So the negotiating with the UFC and trying to get fights for you know, fighters that are coming up or lesser known, um, and we've got a couple of those, is very, very different to when you represent a champion because there are only you know, a handful, really. Um, but essentially, when you're doing a deal with the UFC, it's the same for everybody. There's a, um, they want to sign you up or you've got an existing contract that you've renegotiated. They sign you up for a certain amount of bouts that you have to um, do in a certain amount of years. And if you don't do that, then it gets extended. The, the payment terms um, for those bouts are all pre-negotiated. Um, and if you're a champion, you get pay-per-view. If you're, if, you know, if you're a brand new fighter that's just been signed that doesn't have a great record or has you know, not had too many fights, you're on a much smaller deal than what a champion would be on. So as each fight then comes about, you do a, um, a bout deal. So you, you sort of negotiate the bout deal, but not really. It's just basically saying that you know, Rob, you're fighting Romero in Chicago on June 9th, and you have to do this amount of media, and you've got to go on this days, and you have to be in the go to the city where you're going to fight once, and you know, do some um, pre-organized, pre-negotiated media. As long as there's nothing too different in there, that deal is pretty much signed, um, and then the date is locked down. So there are there's not a lot of except for the upfront when you're actually negotiating the uh, nuts and bolts of the deal, they're, they're, they're pretty easy going. Um, you know, they say, okay, Rob, when is he gonna be fit? Does he want, when does he wanna fight? Rob will say, I'll be, I could fight in this particular period of time. They'll then put forward, fighter, fighters forward. As a champion, you know, you can take or leave them as you wish. Has but Rob ever refused anyone? No, not that I know of, not in my time. Um, you know, I, th I think one of the great things about Rob and, and with real great fighters, they'll fight anyone, you know. You, to be the best, you just gotta beat everybody. So, um, yeah, we've taken everyone. I think Rob's has probably taken the toughest road to champion that anyone could possibly ever take. And that when in arguably the toughest division, fought the toughest fighters back to back. Um, and, you know, now fighting the number one contender again. Uh, so yeah, he's, he's, you know, no one could ever say that he's taken the, the softer road or that he's ever not taken anything that they put to him. So. You, you kind of pick the time of the date, you negotiate the bout deal, then things can get a bit heated. You know, when you're, when you, you, we get to that point, which we mentioned before, where they say, oh, great, great. You know, 
we need Rob to do three media days here, two media days there. We're going to fly him here. We're going to do that. And then it becomes a, the, you get to that point of going, well, okay, that's all great. You've got what you want to do. You need to sell pay-per-view. You need to sell you know, bums on seats. However, Rob has to fight and he's got to train. And to get there, you know, when you're building anything, particularly you know, the way you guys work, it's meticulous preparation. You've got a, every single day training session is planned out for that entire fight you know, camp period. Um, and it gets tighter and tighter and tighter. And when all of a sudden they say, yeah, great, Rob's gonna, you know, we need him to go next week overseas. <laughs> we live in Australia, you know, we don't, we don't live in New York. Yeah, we live right at the end of the world. Yeah, um, all of a sudden it, you know, it becomes, there's friction. You know, with two different people coming with different objectives, trying to achieve the same thing, but um, it, gets, it gets pretty complicated and it gets heated, but. How do you push back on a colossal company like that? How do you, like, as a yeah. person, well, I think when, we, when uh, you push back, like, because I know you do, and then like, when 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 I speak to you or whatever, and you say, "Well, this is what's happened," like, how do you, how does that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I just I always try to do it with reason, you know. I, I I'm a really strong believer that in any deal or negotiation, and it can be that type of thing, or the big contract negotiation, or you know, arguing with your kids over you know making week breakfast. Every good deal has two winners. You know, if one party just wins, it's not a good deal. So um, I try to always do it within reason, you know, and the times when there's had, we've had bad friction and it's, uh, there's no one necessarily fault, they're just trying to achieve their objectives, is when um, they just don't understand or we just say, well, that's, this is the way it is and they say, well, no, this is how it is. And that's not a good negotiation tactic from anyone. And if, as long as there's reason and we're not being unreasonable, then it's all, you know, I find at the end of the day, even though those times you're talking about um, and there's plenty, and it happens across the board on all my clients, but you know, there's been a few with the UFC who are, who are they're, they're great at what they do. Um, but it always ends up with the best result. And at the end of the day, even though we butt heads and everyone's yelling at each other, um, but at the end of the day, you, you, we all inevitably look across the table and go, that was great, we did a good deal. We're really happy. Are you happy? Yeah, we're really happy. And then, so it's a good deal. Um, but you're never gonna get anywhere without like if, if, if we're not arguing and there isn't some kind of t tension or friction, I, we're, I'm not achieving the right things for Rob, you know, as long as I'm being reasonable and they're not going to achieve the right things. So it's part just, of the game, kind yeah, of thing. Just be, I think be firm but fair. Like that's the, the, really the essence of it, of any negotiation. I have a question for you, Rob. What kind of asset is someone like Titus versus, you know, you hear fighters that manage themselves mm. or or you managing yourself, for instance, because you're, 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 you're an intelligent dude, like, um, friends managing you, what, what kind of asset is Titus um, as a manager? I think, I think the, a, bi a big thing is it's the professionalism, being the professionalism behind the role is massive, you know, he takes a massive load off my shoulders by not, for me, not having to worry about anything like that, not having to worry about the, the income coming in, uh, through sponsorships, not having to chase up sponsors, not having to chase up, like make phone calls and, 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 and find new sponsors and, and deal with existing sponsors. Like it's massive, it's a massive relief not having to, to do all that, you know, because um, as we said, we have a very meticulous training regime, training plan, and we, we focus on that and every, every hour of the day is accounted for. So uh, there's always something to be done. And um, in, in the hours or a couple of hours I have that I'm not doing anything, 
last thing I want to be doing is to be on the phone calling up sponsors after I've just had... People don't realise that, eh? Like, when you look at, like, a, a timetable of a day and you go, well, you got, you know, from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. free today. Yeah. No, it's like, we did, we did, we did two-hour training this morning and I feel like I've been through the wars, mate. I, I, am, I am absolutely knackered. And the last thing I want to do is go home and start making phone calls to sponsors and trying to chase up new sponsors and whatnot. It's just, it's a nightmare. It is hard enough trying to entertain my kids. <laughs> like, like and I'm stuck with them. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> they're not the sponsor that'll leave me, you know? Um, so that, that, that's just massive. And what I've noticed is because I've had a, a fair few different managers over the years, because I've been in this game for a while now, is that the professionalism Titus shows and his team displays is, is I haven't come across anything close to it. Like, um, and this is hats off to you guys. You guys are doing a great job. You guys make sure everything's done on time, everything's done properly. When we have events I have to do with, you always make sure someone's there to guide me through it. Um, you make sure that events and people, and then when we go to venues and people require us for X amount of time, it is X amount of time because they're always trying to sneak in a little bit extra or, um, or if there's news reporters and stuff, it, it all just works in properly. You guys, you know, display a great amount of professionalism in the role and uh, you get results. Like I think at the end of the day, all job roles entail like getting results and yep. you know, you guys have really come to the party on that and yeah, it's, it's, it's been great. Yep. I think like when I look at like, the performance models surrounding Rob, like I look at it like they're like little I haven't got a graph to draw, but you know, circles where each sort of circle has to do their job. I can't visualize it. Yeah, draw it up for us. No. Um, yeah. So, like every little, like every little circle has to do their their job, and they have to do their job correctly. And if one one group doesn't, then it doesn't it doesn't work. And I think one of the big things with um, Titus is like uh, the logistics of it. Of that that sort of stuff where we go to we go away and that's all sorted you know it's a massive thing and again like I, I, I really don't know that people give enough credit for that like just simply like being able to defer to you for like okay why why is these people calling us or why why that you know Rob needs to rest can you speak to this guy or whatever so that's like the logistics of it but I think the big thing that comes with uh, Titus and the company is uh, just the IP, the intellectual property behind stuff that a lot of the times I'm, I, I can just ring you and just ask you something that's probably like, you know, real basic, but it clears up everything else. And I think that is is an immensely underrated um, asset that, and again, I don't think a lot of um, teams value, I think the, the, up, the higher end teams do, but the lower, like not even the lower end, I think other teams probably don't. Like having, simply like having a good accountant, having a good manager with that background in law and whatnot, that you can defer to and you can just ask that question and go, can we do this? Yeah. And you can say yes or no. And I think um, those two things are massive. The logistics, yeah, it's awesome, but the IP is, yeah. is super important. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we just, I, I see us as just being one of the, and this is really what we are, we're just one of the cogs in the wheel. Um, and it's, you know, I think the, really it's to Rob's credit, the team that he's put around him. Um, he's got a fa his fantastic um, training team, fantastic coaching management team. You know, he's got a really, uh, you know, strong family life. He's everything, 
is in place in order to give him the best opportunity. You know, we all know anything can happen in the ring when it's in there, um, no matter who you're fighting. But at the end of the day, if he gives himself every single opportunity he can to make sure that when he steps into the ring, he's in the best position and everything is being looked after um, and that everything, everyone is, is trusted to do their role. You know, I, I certainly feel, and we all, we all play little parts, but I certainly feel as management that I never have to worry about Rob, what he's gonna, what he's gonna give in the ring. You know, how skilled he's gonna be, um, how strong he's gonna be, and how well trained he's gonna be. I know you guys are training him absolute, you know, the best he will ever be. I know he's a highly, highly skilled athlete, um, the best in the world at what he does, and he'll train to the absolute point of, you know, perfection which makes my job easy. All I have to care about is making sure you guys are happy. Because the flip side of that, <laughs> from a management perspective, you know, you hear about other athletes and that, like, I can imagine it'd be quite a nightmare having a guy that you're like, I've negotiated this for this dude. The stipulation is that he doesn't rob a grocery store. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. um, how, do I, how do you uh, balance like, what do you do in those scenarios? Like, what do you do in a situation where you go, I wonder if the guy's going to turn up there? Yeah. Or I wonder if they're training or if he's at a nightclub till 4 a.m. Like, it happens, yeah. 100% it happens. And, and it's, with, it's with athletes or not, you know. Or they, what am I going to read in the paper about what they just said to the media today or that they've taken some stupid photo or, you know, they've abused someone or got drunk or something stupid or taken drugs. I've had plenty of clients that have done that kind of stuff. Um, but... There, there's always a reason for it, and the great thing about um, about Rob and about you guys is everyone seems really balanced, and Rob has a really balanced life. And uh, one of my big philosophies in life is that you, you can't expand unless you're balanced. Every it's it's a you know karma, you know yin and yang, Newton's laws. It's all the same thing. It's all balance in your life. And if you want to grow and you want to be successful in something, you have to have that. So. Rob's a, you know, he's known as being extremely humble. He's a world champion and he's no different from the day he was before he was world champion and probably will never change. Um, but he's got a really great family. Uh, he's got a great coaching team that keep him level. Um, and, you know, job as a manager, my job would be too if, he, if I thought that something was changing or he was all of a sudden want to start going clubbing or, you know, was, was telling, talking people in the wrong way, disrespectful way, I would feel it was my job as well to say, Rob, like, you know, how quick do you see people spiral out of control? Um, all the time. Yeah. But how quick though? Well, it's funny. Some some people don't. Some people can be really, really level for a long, long period of time, and then kind of change at the end of it. Other people, you know, I've I've managed young artists that have changed uh, just because they start to think all of a sudden, you know, they know what they're doing, and everyone else is working for them. Um, and I, then I've seen athletes that have gone up and down, been highly successful, and you know being rock bottom and you think they've learned and then they get back to the top and all of a sudden you know they change they think that everyone is below them and you just can't do that you have to realize everyone's equal uh we're, some of us are good at some things some are good at others it doesn't mean anyone's any better than anyone if you have that attitude then that you're you're lucky to be where you are no matter who you are i think you'll you'll stay fairly level but it, it can change very very quickly and when it does it's usually the end you know going back to the Dave, do you have anything you want to ask or say? I'm interested. It's interesting because, like, when they talk about the cogs, you're the cog, <laughs> Rob. Like, so it's interesting. Do you feel the pressure from both sides? Like, I'm interested in your insights because you've got a manager 
coming from this side, you've got your coaching team. Then you have your own family priorities. And a wife is <laughs> a manager, coach, boss, all into one. Like, how do you not get caught up in that drama? Like, cause you're, you're the cog. You're the I, wheel. I, I think... I think a, a big thing, and this has been reflected on our whole coaching team, is that it's all really organic. You know, we we all we all work together really well. We we focus heavily on our relationships. So so there's there's no real pushing or pulling from any one party because we we're kind of just doing it. I don't know how to explain it better than that. It's just like we're all just doing what we are you know because because it's become like uh, and the groups that have surrounded us and the team that has been built has been organic it's like we are who we are and everyone has just kind of fallen into place or or has have, have left us you know what i mean or have gone away i think one of the big things that he just said then was um so it just has it, it yeah it's happened organically but rob probably started fighting professionally not training in that but Fighting professionally now, this has probably gone close to 10 years. Yeah, this is, yeah, 10 years. Yeah, and he's young, so people forget that. And then probably training started in karate since you were what, seven, seven, seven years old. Yeah. yeah. So there's been like a process, and, and, and a lot of times when change occurs, it doesn't, I, I believe it's not necessarily bad. Like it doesn't mean oh, I'm not training with this person anymore. And people sometimes have to manufacture a story I'm not training with this person because he's not good. Nah, it just like, it's changed. It changed, it changed, it changed. And right now, right here, I think it's, it, that's a process of, it's the end, not, not even the end process, it's part of that process of that organic change. So I don't think there's a lot of like, um, not a lot of pushing and pulling. Like I think everyone just knows that what they have to, their job that they have to do, but there's a lot of people that might not necessarily fit into that model. Because that's the interesting part. Because sometimes when you talk about managers and the natural perception of a manager is that authority figure and I've got to make sure everything's under control where your approach and your philosophy is very different. And that's what I was trying to get out of it. It's just like, what's your concept of management? Because I think the general perception of what a manager does and your perception, I think, and your reality of what you implement and what is successful is very different. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think that it's easy to have a, um, a stereotype, a vision of a stereotype of a manager, and it's you know entourage, and there's a lot of you know Don movies King. and things. Yeah, Don <laughs> King, and there's a, there's a lot of managers out there with big big personalities that operate like that, that tell their clients what to do, and they like the media, they want to be in the spotlight. Um, that's why they do it. They like the uh, the glamour and the glitz of it. That I've never been into it for that. Like people ask me. Have I ever wanted to be a UFC fighter? Hell no. no, not in a million years. Have I ever wanted to be a rock star? No, I never want to be a rock star. I like working in the shadows. Nothing w- would be worse for me than people coming and asking for my photograph, you know, and, and signatures. I just wouldn't want it. So, and I, and I don't think a, a, role, a role of a manager is to tell their clients what to do um, or to be in the spotlight. A manager should be behind the scenes, should not be known, you know, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be able to, you know, visualize who managers are. Their role is to make sure that their clients achieve the best they can ever achieve, to provide opportunities for them, to uh, give them guidance, to you know, be a springboard, um, sounding board, sorry, and to um, make sure that any opportunities that can come their way 
do come their way and when they do that they make the most of it so um, you know with Rob it's to make sure that as much weight is taken off him and his team as possible to make sure that uh, in the lead up to fights all the media is handled properly that he's we have that balancing um, of making sure he's comfortable and also we're getting the most media we possibly can and raising his profile so that the sponsors come on board and he's, he's better known uh, and to making sure that we get the best deal we possibly can out of the UFC at the same time maintaining a good relationship with him and everyone else within his you know life that's that's really my job it's nothing more than that um, it sounds like all your roles are clearly defined <laughs> that's what it, that's just my observation is like your team's for this your team's for this and you respect each other's space and you don't dominate over each other's space where sometimes when you have teams of teams working together that ego kicks in and it's just like well this should take priority over this but it seems yeah. like what what that organicness you're saying is that it's actually respect really of yeah. each other's professional yeah. I think I think we're trying to we're, we're, we're all trying to achieve a goal together yeah. um, and we all have our roles Rob's the star like he's the fighter he's the superstar our roles are to support our roles are to support him to getting there the best possible way he can and to making sure that we do our jobs the best we possibly can we're just a team trying to get to that end goal and once yeah. we've got there we we find the next goal all right, and I think as well like you no one's got, you know, like, say, for example, we, we work at TAFE, right? And so you have people that are, I don't know, they might be managing, but they got that, they, they got their job title, but, yeah. they, but they're not managing. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're not, or, or, or they might, they might be, I don't know, but they're not leaders, but they're in a leadership role, and they're in a leadership role because of the, the title. So that doesn't that doesn't happen with us because I don't know it's more real I suppose it's, uh, I think it is like if say I said no I'm coaching because I'm the coach and people are like no dude you're not coaching you're not you're, you're not you know what I mean you you were doing whatever you know then you're not or, or if Titus said well I'm the manager and I'm managing this and you're like dude I haven't seen you for six weeks like where do you know what I mean like it, that that isn't the case like it's not so much people are sitting behind their their job role as as opposed to um, doing their job. You know what I mean? That's always been a big thing with our team is that um, it, it's, we, we, yeah, we exactly as you said, we, we haven't been hiding behind titles, but we, we, we've been looking at each other. We have a very strict model of, of how we want things to flow and how, and how we want things to work. And if you either fit in the model or you don't. And um, if you're in the model, then we, we look at you, we see, assess your skill sets, and we just want you to do that. That's it. Like, that's what, your, that's what your role is. And just do that. That's all you need. And we have, and everyone in that, in, in the model, in the program, in the system, in the group, they, uh, they all know what their role is, what they're good at, what they do, and we respect them. We respect their skill sets and we respect their knowledge in, in that field, and we defer to them in that field. And everyone knows their parts and everyone knows their place. And... You know, we're all we're all happy. We all work really well together. I think even the the, the when we're talking about titles, I think that's even reflective in like Rob's attitude towards being the champion. Like, I don't think you, you can fight. You know, he's going to fight Romero now, which we will talk about in a sec. Um, that fight, like, I mean, it's fifty fifty. It was fifty fifty the first time. Well, Jacare was fifty fifty. If he has to fight Jacare again, it's fifty fifty. If he were to fight anyone that he's fought before, it'll be 50-50 again, whether he beat them or he lost against them. But um, the belt doesn't make you the champion. 
you know it's uh, your attitude to training it's whether and I'll, I'll it's just my my role in it just from a teaching background not so much from a coaching perspective so to speak where if I see a skill gap I sit down with Rob we assess training and I what I believe is concurrent with being a champion has to be met you know but it's not what I believe it's we we also sat down literally sat down and defined what that meant for Rob you know so um, for other people it could be a monetary thing it could be a whatever that's not wrong but we sat down and we defined it and you know those conversations get pretty like personal and that as well because there's other things that come into it and then you hold yourself to that standard of being a champion not necessarily again not even the title and if I'm not doing that then I'm not playing my role in, in the in, in, in the team because there are a lot of guys in the UFC and not in the UFC like mixed martial artists fighters that I see as champions even though they're not wearing the gold right now or, or, or haven't gotten the gold but they just they lead they lead and they're, they're, they're the role model that just speaks of champion you know and I think that is much more important than finding your way to the strap it's, it's, it's how you reflect yourself and how you display yourself and how you, you act you know, and in your opinion, um, who in your division, guys, that you fought, who falls into that category? That when you think champion comes up in, in your head? In, in the UFC or in my category? In your category. My weight division? Yeah. Oh, I, haven't, I haven't thought about it. Spring <laughs> things on me. Um, ah, you, you've got me. I, I can't think of any right now. Do, do you... When, when you when, can you elaborate on what you said then before? Like there, there, there are like there are a bunch of guys that I think that that just they just act like a champion should. Like they're, who? They're role models. Like like a, a, I've always thought Frankie Edgar. He's a he's a great role role model of the sport. He, he's he's been humble his whole career. He's fought at a high level. He's trained his whole life, and he, he just he to me screams like of of, of champion. Hey, he's on my opinion as well. He's got to be like one of the best ever. Like hundred percent. Up, always fought up. up down, yeah. like he's just—I think he's just displayed that throughout his whole career. And um, whether or not he's wearing a strap or not, that, that doesn't change my opinion on him. I think that—that's someone to to look up to and to try to follow in their steps. You know, and then there there are a bunch of guys like that throughout history that have done the same things, if not, and, and have gotten the belt and have displayed that as well. But um, I think how you act and how you and and. And trying to trying to, I think the champion champion title is is exactly that. Like, you're a leader. You're your people. You're someone people look up to. You need to you need to fill those shoes. No big shoes. Um, speaking of title fights, everyone's opinion. I'd like to get um, this Romero fight. Who are you going for, Fab? <laughs> I was going for Romero in the last one. I was going for Romero. Um, I don't know, man. I'll tell you closer to the date. <laughs> um, well, what are we expecting, Rob? Um, so I guess it's been announced today. Uh, I'm fighting Yoel Romero for the second time, June 9th in Chicago. Um, that was a horrible first fight. <laughs> it was hard. It was a hard fight. Um, but to be fair, I think, I think going up against him a second time, I, I, I think I've got him covered, covered. and I, I, um, I feel like I've developed in the year that has passed. It's been a year since I fought him last one, 
and that's a, that's a long time. There's a lot of change in me. A lot of things have happened in that period that have that have invoked change, and uh, you know, I'm I'm really looking forward to to getting in there and and you know, showing in showing in the, my changes. Um, do you? We spoke about this when you were first in the podcast. It was our first show. Do you see, and now having had more time to digest it, do you see any changes when you saw him fight Rockhold? Because I think he fought him injured. I was reading a thing about that. He, he was dehydrated and fought him injured and whatnot. Do you see, did you see anything? <laughs> he didn't look dehydrated. He <laughs> <laughs> looked like a gorilla, right? <laughs> he didn't look dehydrated. But um, I, I think that's the biggest thing is that I look at him when he fights and I, I don't see change. I don't see him changing. I don't see him bringing anything new on board. I don't think see him developing any new skill sets or even improving his existing skill sets to a level that, you know, it looks change. Um, Having said that, though, the existing skill set. <laughs> yeah, the existing skill sets are pretty good. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, like, and I think that that is going to be the difference because I'm changing always. If you look at all my fights. I change a little bit every single fight. Sometimes I go in with different styles, different stances, and um, you know I'm looking to go into this next fight different. You know I feel smarter, I feel faster, I feel stronger, and um, I've already fought him once, and I I feel whenever I've I've had to do things twice, I'm generally better at it the second time because I'm open-minded about things. I'm open to change. I'm open to suggestions and new ideas. Um, so I, I'm going to go into that fight. Knowing what he did the first fight, knowing what he did against Rockhold, you know, finding a happy medium that he could do both, and and, and forcing the fight on him. Um, third time, not not so good for me. I, I fall off on the third, but <laughs> <laughs> the second second time round, I'm pretty good. Titus, what do you? What's a what's it like for you? Like managing to this? Yeah, um, and I wouldn't want to be in there. <laughs> <laughs> they both scare the shit out of me. Uh, yeah, look, I, the, I think it's a great matchup. I, mean, I think we've got the best in the world against the second best in the world. Um, anything can happen, and you know, Yol's a, he's a beast. You know, I, I watched his uh, podcast with Joe Rogan. I, if you I saw it. some of it. Yeah, I didn't. I, I watched half of it. Yeah, it was interesting. You know, hearing, hearing about his history and you know how he thinks he's changed and what he's going to bring to the next fight. And um, yeah, I think it's, it's going to be an amazing fight. Yeah, I think he's a he's an incredible athlete, uh, but you know. Rob will match him and beat him, so it's going to be good. Dave, you from your <laughs> my expert opinion, your expert opinion. <laughs> um, uh, psychologically, do you think because you've gone through one fight? Because I always hear is like fifty-fifty. It's always going in again. Where you're talking about the second time, what what mentally do you think? Like, is it, is it just a little bit more? I've seen him stance, I've seen him move, I've seen him in action in the ring, so I can actually adjust down mentally more for it? Nah, nah, not at all. It's, um, if anything, I'm even more anxious about how the fight's gonna go, how it's gonna play out, because one thing is me fighting the first time and see what he did, but he also saw what I did. Yeah. You know, so Good he can point. make a lot of changes to try to adapt to my game style. Um, so yeah, so. You know, I think, but that's one one thing I have in my favour is that I'm, I'm I'm a very good adaptive fighter. I'm very good at improvising on the spot and adapting to the fight. Um, so, like, I'm anxious. I'm excited. Yeah, I, uh, thinking about it too much, it, it just that's like a yeah. Yeah, just I just start playing on it. That's why a big thing I do is like not think about it too far, not for too long. 
But um, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. It is, it is 50-50. He hits like a truck, and he's a little bit athletic. So, so I, I'm going to have to be on my toes for this fight. He, he is like number one contender for a good reason. Okay. What's it like, um, and I know people in, in Australia, or this has always been a, a, a prevalent thing, uh, finding sparring partners for Romero, for Jacare, for <laughs> Uriah Hall, Rafael Natal, Stephen Thompson. <laughs> I'm pretty... Who are you... Who are you... <laughs> who are you... Um, what's it called? What's the word? Uh, when you try to pretend you're somebody else? What's that called? Like when you mimic someone? Yeah. Fab. No, <laughs> but there's another word I'm missing. But... Who, simulate? Yeah, simulating. Who are you simulating? You were, you, you were Uriah Hall, I forgot. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, I think... Again, I think it's... It's a bit of a myth that you need to go overseas to find a lot of sparring partners. Sure, you'll find the bodies overseas, but um, like that—that's all you'll find overseas is, is the bodies. Like you can you can find that and so much more here. You know, I've developed a good relationship with my team, and like a lot of the guys I wrestle are, are much smaller than me. A lot of, for a lot of the a lot of the, the fights where I've had like those top level wrestlers that I've had to drill with, I just I drill with guys that like a, almost literally half my weight and we just flow and we move and we just work technically. Uh, but like my, my, um, my teammate Izzy Fitikefu, he, he was my last Yo Romero simulator. <laughs> but how does that, how does that, how, how does that play out for you? Like how does it, like if you're part, like if you've got a partner that's a lot smaller, mm. right? And how does that how does that work out well, I think for one you'll never perfectly simulate an opponent or the fight ever let alone your Romero yeah, or someone like let that. alone someone like him like like no one could do what he does even if you tried it's, it's just ridiculous what, what he's, he can accomplish and he can do in the, in the octagon so you can't simulate someone like that like period but um, I think a lot of it comes down to to having a partner that works well with you and then it's on me to, to try to visualize my opponent. So knowing that, okay, the guy in front of me is throwing and it's not quite reaching, but I know that my opponent has that little bit more reach, so I've got to make sure I get it out of the way. Or, and the body movements are the same. My movements are the same. The way I move and the way I, I react to, to what my, my partner's trying to do is the same. And... Um, yeah, that, that's why a lot of, like with me and you flow a lot and we flow move a lot and we, we simulate fights a lot and uh, it's just very important for me to get into my, my own headspace and my, the mental game and the mental preparation for my opponent to start visualising that. Having said that, you're also preparing, not just for, because we do this all the time, but it, it's so felt that we're preparing for your Romero and it coincided with the Commonwealth Games. Can you both speak on the Commonwealth Games, what it was like to get it across, that the, the whole thing, what it was like to get it to this point, and then what's happened since? What's actually happened basically today? You can lead it off if you want, mate. <laughs> you, you, you were the one that had to, do, had to deal with all the paperwork and contacting everyone. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's been... Um, I mean, Rob's done all of the physical work, you know, getting into the Games and... So you qualified, you went through all the whole qualification process, you beat everyone that you had to beat. Yeah. And 
I'm on the team. Yeah, you're on the team. I'm on the Commonwealth team. Yeah, so he's he's obviously made the um, he's made the team. That's an incredible you know, honor and uh, achievement more than anything. Um, you know, the, the games are obviously they're a month away, less than a month until Rob's uh, supposed to be fighting on the 13th of April. Um, you know, and he's I think the training that he's done within those camps have uh, you know it's wrestling. It's it's perfect for Romero. It's uh, got him back probably from you know the level of fitness and health he was at after uh, you know getting getting the staff infection and chickenpox better than anything could possibly have, ever, have been done you know we spoke about that how good that was uh, now unfortunately there's also there's a there's a fight coming up a UFC fight um, on the 9th and uh, yeah it's, it's it's complicated you know Rob's obviously um, he's trained hard to get onto the games and um, there's, we've had issues uh, getting to a point where we got to yesterday about um, Rob fighting. The UFC didn't want him to fight at all. Didn't want him to wrestle. Didn't want him to wrestle. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, wrestle uh, in the games because they felt that um, it was it was taking his focus off um, what he should be concentrating on, which is obviously the, the big fight. And this you. just came up now. Just, yeah. Well, it's been it's been kind of going yeah. back and forth for um, a couple of weeks. Uh, once once we um, Rob you know declared his fitness and the June date in Chicago became a real option. Um, it's become an issue and uh, you know we'd obviously talked about this in the past with them about the games in the lead up to the Perth fight when that was going to happen. So anyway, we got to a point where where they finally turned around because they did tell us that we couldn't fight um, for those reasons and we negotiated back and forth for a couple of weeks and we got to uh, the point yesterday where they said okay we he can fight however if he uh, can wrestle less yeah sorry yeah keep saying wrestle and fight he can, he can wrestle in the in the games but um if he gets injured and he can't fight romero on june then his uh his belt will be stripped so um yeah that's quite a big deal obviously for rob <coughs> do you want to speak on the decision from a personal level yeah um yeah, I, I've, I was absolutely gutted, to, to be honest, to, 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 to hear about, like, the, the, the like, just, it's, it's even hard to speak about. I, um, I really, I really want to go to the Commonwealth Games, and I really want to represent Australia in, in those games, and I want to, I want to get in there, you know, it was, it was hard work to get there, and, uh, I was, I was training my ass off to get in there, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, UFC is my employer and UFC is my, my, my job. It's my job, it's my means of income for me and my family and like I can't I can't jeopardise the income for my family and jeopardise, you know, my the 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 wealth of my family for for a passion of mine. I, f- I feel that's just just a bit greedy. <laughs> I don't know. It's just um yeah, it, it is what it is. I, uh, I'm very, I'm very gutted that I'm not going to be able to compete in the games. I, um, it's a decision I had, to, I, I, I have made, because I, the, the risk factor is, is too high. I can't get in there, and if, if I get injured, then you know I'm stripped. I don't get paid. I'm not going to be able to fight. And and they're talking about stripping you of your belt. It's not like, I don't think the risk is the inherent risk. And this is, I think, an important point for for people to understand. The risk is not the inherent risk that you hold if you go in there to compete and get injured, because that you can deal with that risk. 
we can mitigate that risk too by you know training appropriately and it's the, the risk is in the fact that if you were to get injured you get stripped of your belt and the difference financially from you defending a belt as opposed to you having to fight your way back up to the belt yeah. is incredible and that's what a lot of people I don't think understand it's night and day and I can't I can't jeopardize that no you know my wage for for for, for the to, to wrestle you know as much as I want to wrestle then I want to get in there and I want to, I want to, I want to do it it's just uh, the, the risk is too high does that give you when you <coughs> What's your take on, on anything then that, that we just said then, Titus? Do you have anything? Uh, yeah, I think there's, you know, as we kind of touched on it earlier, with, with everything, there's two sides to it. Um, and I think it's, a, it's Rob's trained really, really hard, you know, to qualify first in his weight class to, uh, and compete for Australia um, in the Games. Is, that's, in, that's incredible. Like not, not many people do that. Um, it's a massive, massive feat, a massive achievement. Um, to even make the team, let alone, you know, in this sport doing what he's doing. So it's it's devastating for him. He's trained hard. This is, you know, once, maybe twice, maybe twice in a lifetime opportunity. So it's disappointing for him. Um, on From the UFC side, uh, I can also see their point. You know, it's... Uh, 100%. It's, it's this, this is a multi, multi-million dollar event. You know, Rob's the star of that event. He's the champion in the headline fight in what could potentially be, from my understanding, multi title you know card so uh it's millions and millions of dollars there's a lot at stake for rob there uh there's massive amounts of stake if it, if it, he gets injured even though obviously we know um he could just as easily get injured sparring on the same day back in the gym um it's the same thing so i can see what why they're doing it i respect that um it's it's just a disappointing really situation for rob personally dave do you do you have any like looking at it from an outside kind of perspective, that that kind of decision, like from a monetary perspective, I mean it's a no-brainer. But looking at it from a perspective of like, you know, from the public perspective, having to make that decision at Commonwealth Games, which people train their whole lives to do, represent your country and whatnot, and I know that's something that Rob's extremely passionate about, versus understanding that this is a like a huge financial decision. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, sorry that you were put in that situation. It just sucks, but um, like I think um, I think what I notice more is that the light that you brought to the Commonwealth Games, because really, a lot of people weren't even really overly interested, and then we see you on the news with the team, and I think that's the first time I've ever seen uh, <laughs> that 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 was a, we do that in Australia. So that publicity that you brought to to the games too, I think, is going to have a, an impact on sort of you know the engagement from that. Where where I, I was sort of like. That's the first time I actually ever seen any media coverage of wrestling from Australia, and I don't know if have you been in the game a bit longer than me, but you were kind of like put up as like, oh, this is the first time we've actually had a, a prof- professional fighter, and there was actually momentum and promo behind it. So it's it's probably going to be an impact from that, which, which yeah, I think I think from the the sport of wrestling in and of itself, it's definitely the most coverage and the highest profile person that I can think of, yeah. you know, that's competed. And that's got nothing to do with um, the caliber of athlete. Like we've had some high level athletes compete for Australian wrestling, but no one of that caliber and no one that could bring the eyes to wrestling in this country, like Rob has as for as long yeah. as I can remember. Um, and that, that Rob took all that pressure in his stride 
and uh, unfortunately we had to make that that decision. And like like Titus said, I fully get the the point that the UFC has as well. Like and and I mean for Rob, I don't think there there is even a decision to make mm. in the in the, the no. night and day finances and whatnot. That I think anybody would be kidding themselves if they were to criticise him, you know what I mean? Like, there'd be not even the most hardcore person if you're talking about the sums of money that we're talking yeah. about. They'd, they'd make that decision, they'd go slap their mum for that much money, you know what I mean? So I think they're kidding themselves to, to offer any sort of criticism. Even still, like, if you had to pick between the wage you bring home to your family and, and not bringing home a wage to your family, it's like, what are you going to pick? Like yep. literally, like, like me going to the games is a direct risk to to my income, and I'm I'm, I'm the sole income earner of my family, and you know if I don't bring that in, then this is what it is, you know. But but yeah, I'm I'm obviously very devastated. Um, I didn't realize how much it would affect me until until I made the decision, and uh, yeah, you know, it, it's it's made me sad, like almost depressed, to think that. Um, you know, I was this close to, to being able to represent Australia, but uh, you know, we we all have our we all have our things. Um, yeah. It, any any questions to Titus surrounding leadership management or yeah. anything that you have? I, I'm a manager and I love this stuff because I'll probably use a lot of the stuff you said in my class to teach students. So just <laughs> straight, <laughs> straight up, I'm going to rip your stuff. No, but, but we are going to we are using these the, the podcast as resources at TAFE. Yep. Yeah. We uh, obviously we are a TAFE, just yep. in case anyone, and uh, we have been using <laughs> a lot of the resources from these podcasts for our classes and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, yep. sorry, you were saying. Yeah, um, one of the, I think, whether you're applying for a job or part, is hardcore stakeholder engagement and negotiating contracts of that. Like, you saw the emotional, how, how it will be impacted on your clients, you'll see that. How do you personally deal with that? And what well-being strategies do you put in place so that you're mentally safe and with your own well-being? Because I think that's the thing that with managers too, sometimes we forget that you're humans <laughs> um, and, and that you, what, what's your strategies for managing these high-risk negotiations and what grounds you as a human? Um, uh, yeah, it, it, it has an impact, you know, um, particularly with with almost all my clients, I'm very close with them, you know, and a, a, a client management um, relationship when you're in a, with a small company like mine, and we're not big, you know, we've got 20 clients or so, uh, it's almost like a marriage, like you become very, very close and you live and breathe the emotions that they breathe. So, um, you know, it can be hard, but it's really... It's what's really hard for me is 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 not, is seeing the disappointment in my in Rob, you know, in my in my talent when something's got to happen like that, and it's uh, what you have to mean as a manager. You're an advisor, um, and you're expected to you know um, fulfill a certain type of role uh, where um, you, I can't give bad advice. You know what I mean? And I can't I can't be seen to be weak um, or just you know emotionally affected by things so um, you have to kind of step away and give a balanced opinion on what that you know the situation as it is and uh, even though you know you know Rob Bob's would be heartbroken I'm really disappointed you know but I'm not him um, he, he what he's feeling is far far worse than what I'm feeling uh, I would have loved that opportunity because I think it's a it's a once-in-a-lifetime it's fantastic not many people get to represent their country 
uh, you know, the media around it would have been great um, for a lot of reasons for his profile within Australia. Uh, that would have come with other you know, financial gain um, opportunities. Uh, but really, it's a per, you know, it's a that's a personal journey. You know, most athletes in the Olympics are not getting paid. Um, they're there competing at the highest level. A lot of them amateur. Uh, you know, Rob's not getting paid to, to compete in the Commonwealth Games for his country. It's it's a it's really just a privilege. So to work so hard and then get it taken away is it's emotional. It's it's draining. Um, you know, but my role is to be a middleman. It's to uh, be at arm's length to deal with the heat that you know comes. Um, from dealing with those negotiations and to try to do the best I can to make it the least bad it can be, you know, for Rob. So, but some of the stuff I think, and you, I think what you're referring to is how sometimes how people may speak to you or the the people you have to deal with, not necessarily with the UFC, but with other management. Because I I know, like we've been in situations where I know you have to speak to people or whatever, and I, I I'm like. I'm so glad I don't have to speak to this fuckwit. Like, you know what I mean? And um, you have yeah. to. And I mean, how do you... Is that what you're yeah, asking? Yeah, yeah. Like, how, how do you do deal that? with it mentally? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's stressful. You know, when, when you've got... Um, and the UFC is actually pretty good. You know, they're, they're good to deal with. They're hard. They, they push really hard. Um, they're tough negotiators. But, you know, Mick, Mick, Maynard, Mick Maynard, for example... Like how many fighters are these guys, managers are these guys dealing with? Like the amount of crap that I give them, they've got 600 fighters, 600 <laughs> managers that are calling and like they answer my text straight away, they call me back straight away. They've always been professional. They're hard, but they're reasonable. So if, if someone's being a real unreasonable dickhead, it's different. Like I can be in a real unreasonable dickhead if I want to. So um, sometimes you've got to do that, but yeah, I mean, I, I have- uh, Is the music industry worse for that? There's dickheads everywhere. No, everyone always says, oh, you're there's, no shorty, <laughs> there's, there's no shorty, James. There's no shorty. There's one truth in the world. <laughs> there's great people everywhere. There's dickheads everywhere. Like people always say to me, oh, you, you know, that client must be a real, you know, prima donna or, geez, it must be hard to manage those fighters. They must be a hard-ass dickhead. And I actually know, like, there's amazing people. Most of my clients are, well, all of my clients right now are amazing people. Um, you know, Rob, Rob, outside the ring, is the most, like, kind, gentle, humble person ever. Uh, get in the ring it's a different story um, so as long as they're good people then then I would do whatever I can for my client do I have you know, sleepless nights all the time like if I've got to make a big call for a client telling him something or her something or if I've got a massive negotiation the next day or did something not quite go the way it should I just go spend all night with you know butterflies and nerves and, and stress dealing with it and that comes, you know, gets back to my family and all that kind of stuff. But my role is to be a middleman, is to, it's to deliver a certain role for my clients and I've got to do that. Whatever stress that brings, I've got to be able to flush it out, you know, take it on the chin and move on and understand that at the end of the day, I'm just there. I'm providing an arm's length negotiation um, vehicle. I was never going to fight in the games, you know. <laughs> Doesn't affect me, Rob was. He's the one who now can't. Um, so that's tough, but I think, yeah. Either way, it's, it is what it is. So now we've got to move forward and make sure that he is in the best position he can be for the Romero fight. One of the things I think when I look at Titus and just want to speak of just because of how my brain works and that, like, I see him as, like, 
this is the role that he should be doing. You know what I mean? He's yeah. not like a guy that went, you know what, I flunked out of, you know, couldn't be a solicitor, so I'm doing this. Like, I think that is like the role that, that, he's, that he should be doing because I think for, for the most part, at least outwardly, have like a very like stoic personality, like a very, almost sociopathic. Very, <laughs> like, very, very like, like calm kind of person. And when you, you hear the, the background, even when you hear about like all the bullying and all the stuff mm. that when like it takes a certain personality because it's, I don't even think it, you could even train that. Like it's just like certain personality that would go, or I'm going to deal with it like this way, or I'm going to deal with it that way. And he dealt with it this particular way. And then to be at a really young age and then go, oh, I'd like to be a band manager. You know, that's what I want to do. I can relate to that to a certain extent because like, I always knew that I'd end up coaching. Like, I'd, Even as a little kid, like, I, I, I knew I'd probably end up doing like a, some sort of teaching degree and coach, like whether it was basketball or athletics or something. But, um, so I kind of relate to that and I think like, that's when you see people like that, they just, that's what they do. Yep. Any, anything else? Uh, just interesting, like, um, when you know you have to make one of those calls and it's been up all night, do you, like in terms of management, like they say, oh, do it first thing in the morning, get it out of the way so you're free. You don't have that luxury, do you? So it's just like, it's hit me now, I have to respond, do it. Yeah. Well, do, you, do you have a strategy around sort of how do you actually, do you, I need to get this out of the way first, all the heavy burden stuff so then I can focus on the other stuff or is just play it by ear? I just play it by ear, but I, but I also, um like I, I have, I always, I try to always remember two things. One is that um, it's never as bad as you think it's going to be. So awesome. you'll all, you'll build this stuff up in your mind, and you'll procrastinate on it, and you'll put it off, and you put it off, thinking, "Oh, this is going to be so bad, like, it's going to kill me, and it's all going to go wrong." When you actually do it, you just, it just, it's never that bad. Yeah, there might be some screaming or some egos get bruised, or you know. But at the end of the day, if you've got it, if you're um, well researched. You've taken a reasonable stance. What you're doing is um, the right thing for your client. Uh, then it's all going to be okay. Uh, and the other, the other thing I always try to remember is that um, communication or lack of communication is the heart of every problem in the whole world that's ever existed within humankind. Uh, so, you know, if you just get on the phone, you talk about it, you tell them the reasons why. You explain why you're doing it. They might like it, they not like it. But at the end of the day, if you can justify and give them good reasons, it's going to be okay. So, you know, I don't have any system of why I do it, but I, if I can look at it and think, well, I'll do that tomorrow afternoon. I'll just go, well, I'm procrastinating. Yeah. I'll just do it now. Like, pick up the phone and just ring it, do it right now. Um, and it's, it's always, you know, better than you thought it would be. I mean, that's it for us, I think, as far as um, Range TV for this episode. I um, just want to thank you again, Titus, for coming out and doing the podcast. I know how, how busy you are and, you know, you came quite a way. Um, Rob, thank you very much. And Dave, thank you as always. Thank you. All right. Thanks a thank lot, you. guys. Peace. Peace.